And I think also there's a huge potential in starting not with facts. I mean, you know, leading with emotion, with concern. No one can argue with your climate concern. No one can argue with if you're worried about your children's futures and what that's going to look like and whether they'll be able to experience the same nature that you did when you were a child. You can't really argue with worry. You can't really argue with feelings. So I think there's a, a lot of potential to pierce through bubbles, meeting people um, where they are with your own story and your own feelings, I think. You are listening to Stories for the Future, Season 2. Stories about fixing our future and about big changes in career and life. Stories about being a beginner and daring not to always know the answer from the start. And stories about creating the best everyday life that we can. My name is Veselma Klavnes Berge and in this season I will be talking about connecting changes. I hope you will join me as I go out in the world and talk to people who are making positive changes for themselves, for other people and for the planet. Welcome! Hello and welcome back to Stories for the Future. With today's guest, the word future in the podcast title is more relevant than ever as we will be talking a lot about the ones who really are our future, namely our children. When my guest presents herself, she does that by starting with what is her main role. I'm first of all a mom, she says, and I very much relate to that priority. Nothing is actually more important than to try to create the best possible world and future for our children, for all children. Frida Berge Eklund is, as promised in the last episode, also from Sweden. She's founder of Our Kids Climate, a global network of parent-focused climate organizations. She's also spokesperson for the Swedish parent and climate organization Klimat. An important keyword for today's com- conversation is communication. Frida has dove deep into how to communicate effectively about the climate. And one thing is to talk to grown-ups about it. And other thing is how to talk to children about the climate. And digging into this for herself, trying to talk to her own kids, actually made Frida write a book about what she found to be the best way to do this. You will definitely hear that Frida is a very good communicator. She's very well-spoken and also really clear about what we should focus on in the years to come. I first met Frida about two years ago. We have been sporadically in contact since then, and every time I speak with her, I learn something about children, about climate, about communication, and maybe first and foremost about priorities. And I believe there are levels of realization when it comes to the urgency of the times that we are living in. I know that I have a stronger sense of urgency today than I had two years ago, and I have different priorities. I know that Frida opened my eyes to parts of that urgency when I first met her, and I think she's still doing that today. So look to Sweden, as we say. 
I will, and I hope you will too after this episode. Here's another brilliant Swede for you. Here's Frida Berry Eklund. So today I have the great pleasure to let you get to know um, Frida Berry Eklund. Welcome, Frida. Thank you very much. Tack. <laughs> yeah. And today, again, we are going to Sweden. Uh, something must be going on in Sweden, it seems, because I keep coming back to you. So uh, maybe you are... Uh, you're up to something, something great over there. I don't know. <laughs> so, but to, to start with just a short introduction, who are you? Um, so primarily I'm a mum. Yes. Uh, I'm a mum to two children. Um, they are six and nine years old. And I think they were kind of the reason why I do what I do today. Mm. Uh, it all kind of started with them in a way. Um, but I am also uh, a climate communications expert. I've been working in PR and communications, focusing on climate change for a long time, uh, nerding out on everything to do with how to communicate about climate change and how we get people to understand what's going on and how we get people to act. Mm. Um, and I'm also an author of a book that I'm sure we're going to talk about a bit later called yes. talk to children about climate change um and i run a swedish climate parent organization called vorabans klimat uh, and have been doing that uh involved in that group since 2012 wow that this is a lot, it's uh, a lot. <laughs> yes it's a lot <laughs> so we will uh, get back to everything uh but to start with um I always like to see how people's journey started and why they might have changed course underway and and why that happened. So so for your uh, for for you, how did it start? Like, what mm. did you study from the start, and what were your thoughts about what you were going to become, like your work? And um, so I think. Uh, I guess most people have a couple of key moments that they look back upon and, and say that they, mm. those moments were real turning points. Yes. Um, so when I finished school at 18, I had no idea what I was going to do. I worked in lots of different companies. I tried a little bit of everything. Um, and I was doing quite a lot of music at the time. I was in a pop band for quite a long time. Oh. So I did know. Is, on, uh, is that something on, we can talk about? <laughs> yeah, that's something we can talk about. That's yes. my secret past. Interesting. As yes. a, in, in a pop group and in, in, in well, in a few different bands, um, mm. singing, playing guitar. Um, mm. And then I guess I was about 24. I was working in the Swedish recycling industry. And I remember there was a man who came into the office and, and he just did this amazing talk about what's happened to the planet in this short space of time that modern man has been around. Mm. Uh, and that uh, lecture, just something something happened uh, then. And I just decided there and then, this is what I got to do. I got to focus on this. I got to focus on, on the environment in some shape or form. Mm. So it was quite late, but then I decided to go to university. It was only one course I wanted to do that had to do with the environment. I, had, I, I talked okay. my way into the university. I just nagged my way in, uh, yeah. just had this complete awakening that this is 
this is what it's all about. It's about the planet. It's about the environment. It's about natural resources. Um, and I remember my mind was blown when I went to university and I first heard, I mean, this was back in like late 1990s or early 2000s. I remember we talked about like what happens if you put, I mean, if you could put solar panels on just 10% of the Saharan des- desert, you could power the earth like many, many times over. And I remember like, what? But why, why aren't we focusing on that? That's crazy. Mm. I just never thought about it in that way. It's very early on. But then, of course, at that time, it's just like, well, that's not possible because you can't, you know, that, that energy can't be transported and it can't be stored anywhere. So that's a little bit crazy. But it is, you know, it is a possibility, maybe sometime mm. in the future. Uh, and then fast forward, I ended up working for Oxfam International, working quite a lot on global campaigns, uh, focus on, on lots of different issues, but also to do with climate change. And one of um, the first um, tasks I had working on climate change was um, being part of the, the summit, the Copenhagen summit, um, yeah. the, the well-renowned failure <laughs> that happened. Yes. Um, and uh, after that big climate summit failed so miserably. That was in the year, was it? 2000 oh, about 2009 right something yeah. like that yeah yeah i mean it's a huge ago. it's a while ago a long time ago um and i remember at that time as well it's amazing how much had happened because we could not talk about the two degree target it was just like you can't mm. talk about the two degree target it's just too politically difficult you know you can't mention yeah. the two degree target anyway the cop failed and i remember a few of us you know we were all really depressed and thinking you know this is not good news. The world is not taking this issue seriously. Uh, I remember thinking, like, where are all the parents? I mean, they've mm. got the most to lose here. Why aren't they up in arms about this? I mean, the world is in a really bad place and there's no global leadership. Where are the parents? You hear from the scientists, you hear from the activists, uh, you hear from the politicians, you, you hear from the corporate leaders, but nowhere was the parents. And I thought, mm. that's, that's interesting. Where are they? And that was just a thought. And then uh, three years later, in 2011, I had a child. My son was born. Mm. Um, and that was my other kind of big, I think, pivotal moment. Because before that, yeah. I understood the theory of climate change. I, like, I understand the science, I, I, you know. But then when I had my son, it became really personal and really emotional. Because then the theory and the knowledge was paired with the sense of wanting to protect my son ultimately and all other children then Mm. so it became personal and then um, that's also around that time just a year later uh, this Swedish group formed just a group of you know concerned parents and I was like yes finally finally Mm. parents are getting it and getting together I want to be a part of that so I, Mm. I, I jumped on that opportunity and have been part of that group ever since um, so yes. that was my big, um, big moment of understanding. Yeah, a coconut moment, as I coconut. call it. Coconut, indeed, coconut moment. <laughs> big coconut. So I, I, um, I read uh, an article that you got published in the Independent in December. I think mm-hmm. it was. Uh, and I just want to read a few paragraphs. The last uh, couple of paragraphs from that. Um, Our wish for a decent or even great future for our children is universal. 
as is the urge to protect the children we love. Love and care for the next generation cuts across political, geographical, social, and ideological fault lines. And it can invoke parents to do remarkable things in the name of love. It's a superpower not to be messed with. If more parents knew what was really at stake for their children, wouldn't we rise up in the millions or even billions? And I just thought that was so, it's, it's kind of uh, the essence, I think, that you, because you are a parent, uh, no matter what uh, political or geographical or other stance that you have, you have this universal, like, common platform that you stand on. Can yeah. you talk about a, a little bit more about wh- what you think about this and how how is this, how do you work in that climate organization to kind of use that as the the common ground? Well, I think, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot, obviously, like parenting is such a strong identity marker. Mm. Um, and something happens when you're, you're, you become a mother or a father. And, uh, you know, the, the things obviously that happen physically, emotionally, um, that happens to you. But I think also the notion of being a parent kind of supersedes other identities. Right. So before I was like an activist, but if someone Mm. asks me now, who are you? First and foremost, I'm a mum. I'm a parent. Um, So it's an identity marker that's, that's quite important. And what that signals is I, my motivations are not for me. Like what I do Mm. and what I care about is for someone else. It's like that kind of selfless. I want something good for someone else. It's not Mm. about me anymore. I don't really care what happens to me, but I do care about what happens to my children and their children, Mm. hopefully. Yeah. So I think there's a strong potential for change. And I think the other thing that's interesting about being a parent is it's one of those moments in your life where you're open to change. There Mm. are a few moments in your life where we know that behavior change comes more easily. And that is moments like you have a, you have a child uh, or you finish school uh, or you know you retire there are these pivotal moments in time where you might do big shifts yeah. um, and I think that's what's so interesting about the parental frame and the identity of being a parent and I think if we manage to talk to that identity rather than talking to our heads about climate change like talking to our mm. hearts about climate change and what that actually means for us as parents and caregivers and families I think um, that has the potential to move people in a different way than if we talk graphs and, you know, projections and targets and policies. Mm. Um, and I'm fascinated by how we can kind of leverage that parent power in more people. Because, of course, it is a, everyone who is a parent knows that it's a superpower. Yeah. You do things you never thought were possible. Just even the mere fact of, like, giving birth is, like, something that isn't really possible, but you do it. Yeah, it happens, so true. You know? Yeah. Mm. But uh, uh, talking about uh, those two movements that you are very much involved with, both the Swedish one, uh, Våra Barns Klimat, mm-hmm. and um, the international one, Our Kids Climate. What is it that you do, like in practical, practical yeah. terms? Yes. Um, so with the Swedish group, I spend two days of my week, well, 
I get paid for two days of my time. But yeah. as we all know, we do a lot of work uh, outside of that uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is a group focused on political change. So kind of gathering loads of people, as many people as possible, to kind of show that there's a strong parental uh, support and push for uh, climate politics that are in line with science. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's kind of a message that's very similar to the young youth movement and the Fridays for Future movement. Like listen to the experts and the science. That's kind of all we're saying. And mm-hmm. our job is to show that there are, you know, thousands and thousands of parents that want this change. We want this change for our children. And we are, we will be backing those politicians who push for that change and we'll vote out the ones who don't. Um, so this work is a lot to do with kind of building toolboxes for parents to get involved uh, in a way that works for parents in particular that are extremely time poor and, you know, yeah. very engaged um, but also have lives. Yes. Uh, so that's one part of it. And then pushing for political change, the kind of political advocacy. Uh, so being in the rooms with politicians or ministers, uh, bringing forward like the, the parental voice and our children's voices in that that space. Obviously, we carry that burden because a lot of children are not invited into political spaces. Um, so it's our job mm. to carry their perspectives and interests into the room. Um, and then thirdly, we try to... Um, talk about climate change in a way that kind of get people get people's attention and mm. you know get them moving on climate change so focusing on on communications and and um and that area and then in um i mean we did this work from 2012 and then in 2015 you know it was the time for the big climate summit in paris that, mm. that resulted in the paris agreement and that year i remember thinking what well, but we're doing this great work here with parents uh, and it's such an important part of of society and society being mobilised on climate change. So there must be more groups like us out there, surely. And shouldn't we be working together and shouldn't we be, you know, doing something jointly to, you know, focusing on that big climate summit? So I emailed out to all the international lists that I had and all the international contacts and just asked around, are there any more groups? And there were a few out there there weren't that many maybe 12 groups in the beginning mm-hmm. and that's when we formed our kids climate but that's kind of like the international platform for collaboration between groups that are focused primarily on uh, engaging parents and families and caregivers on climate change mm-hmm. so that started in 2015 and of course since then has grown massively mm-hmm. not least because the children uh, stepped out on the streets yeah. in 2018 and of course, in the wake of that, there were millions of parents, you know, waking up and wondering what this is about and getting interested and involved. So since then, we've seen a huge grow- growth in um, in parent-led campaigning and, and action on climate change, which is amazing. Yes. Um, yes. And also to do with the fact that you find others, like-minded people that you can learn from and get inspired by and and collaborate with, um, which I think is a mm. is a good source of strength and inspiration i guess yes so i spend a little bit of my time we have a little bit of funding for the global work i spend about one day a week helping uh, that kind of international movement with Mm. collaboration and helping the, the international movement grow and be heard great so you actually you have three days a week that you are actually paid to do this now that's great (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
better than most better than most yeah yeah and and talking about uh, getting inspire inspiration from from other other parents um when i first met you we will get back to uh, when and why uh that was actually what triggered um me and yeah to go back home and gather a group uh, of people and start a Norwegian sister organization to to våre barns klimat which is called föräldralöfte and i just have to say that i'm so full of admiration for what you have accomplished in sweden because i i thought a little bit naively perhaps that this would be really easy and it's just to start a group and people will come running <laughs> and it's actually a lot of work Absolutely. and uh, i have to admit that it's we have the occasional webinar now things have of course been very difficult now in covid it's hard to do things physically but it's a, it's a little bit asleep because we haven't really figured out how to get people engaged and maybe most of all how to uh, how to find those people who have the time to do oh. the work uh, because the people that I approached approached from the start were already really engaged through their work through political activities etc and they're really busy so mm. it's um it's it's a puzzle to me how to figure this out what what advice would would you give me what advice um i mean we've been doing this in 2012 and i think we have a lot of learning on the way mm. um it started out with a, a small group of us um i guess we were about maybe 10 or 15 and this group of, of parents that have run this organization now th- since then has kind of gone between five and 25 people Mm. Um, and I think more than anything, we know that it will take stamina, right? It's a, it's, yeah. it's a long game. Um, and within this group that have run the Swedish organization, people have burnt out in that time. Yeah. Like the most committed people, they burn out because it is really difficult to have a day job in the day. Then you have family, you know, mouths that need feeding and, you know, activities with the children and it's bedtime. Mm. And then mm. at 10 o'clock at night, you have a couple of hours to do some sort of, you know, active engagement on climate change. It's it's mm. really, really difficult for parents mm. to find that time. Um, and we've learned that the hard way. So a lot of people have burnt yeah. out. And this group has changed completely. I'm the only one left mm. now that was okay. part of the original group. Um, but there's also some learnings there that we've really practiced now. And I think some of the lessons that we have is that it's important to be many so that the tasks can be divided into smaller yeah. chunks because yes. it tends to be that it's a few people that are the project managers that really drive the work mm-hmm. and if those people are too few they will burn out eventually so it's important to have a group of doers that is as big mm-hmm. as possible so you can divide yeah. up the work i guess the other thing is prioritizing so not trying to do everything but like being really kind of clear in the like what is our added value here? Like what, what can we focus mm. on? Like what's our priority? We're not going to do everything because that's not possible. So what can mm. we do with the powers and the tools that we have in this group mm. and really, really prioritize? Um, and we've worked a lot with structures and methods as well. 
So we've tried to build a way in our work, evening work, for instance, uh, work on um, weekends. We hardly ever do that anymore. So we try to slot in kind of team meetings, for instance, during lunch hours during the week. So the people that work will have a lunch hour anyway. You can eat your lunch and do this work. So you can do it during Mm. the day so that you can have your evenings with your family. So we try to do these kind of things. And things like we get away from email by using other platforms for engagement. So we have like chat rooms. So you can get, you know, you can get involved in the the projects that that you you like and you don't have the constant ping of your phone and a million mm-hmm. emails to deal with. Mm-hmm. So that's practical things like that that we've worked a lot with to make sure that engagement is as easy as it can be mm-hmm. and it, a, an easier lift. And then I think we're not being shy to just bluntly ask for help so all the work that we've been doing basically is is people's goodwill uh like do we know someone who can do this do we have someone that can take some nice pictures do we have someone in our network that can help with this particular thing and asking for help like bringing in people and using people's skills uh, that has been a key so can we find someone who's who wants to do something but they're really great at taking photos great call me when you Mm. need photos and that's quite an easy lift. So something that you might be good at and or do during your, your day, your day job, you can ask people to give a little bit of that knowledge and know-how to an organization. Mm. And that, I think, has really helped us build mm. the capacity that we have today, uh, which is not much. I mean, we have the equivalent of one full-time staff that we divide between four people. And that, I mean, that money is is solely to kind of help this group and support this group pull that heavy load of, the boring, heavy stuff that you do mm. in, a, in a non-profit organization. Yeah. So those are some of the things. And then I think I'm at a point where I'm just like, give us the money. Someone <laughs> yes. is to give us the money. Just give us the money. Yeah. We've got so many ideas. You know, we have, we have all the thinking and the strategies. We, you know, we have the vision and we know what we want to do and why we do it. Just give us the money and we'll make it happen. Mm. Uh, Obviously, we're not going to take any money from oil companies, but I'm a little bit like companies, they have lots of money. We don't have any money, but we've got the the skills and the know-how and how to push for change. Um, mm. so a bit yeah. more matchmaking. I'm past being that, shy about money. Lots, lots of good advice there. Um, I, I should have taken notes, but I have it on recording. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> so, okay, back to where we first met. Uh, We met in Atlanta during the climate reality leadership training. And that was in 2019. Uh, And I have already talked quite a lot about these trainings on this podcast. But for those that haven't heard it yet, or haven't really uh, gotten it, this is the climate reality project started by former Vice President Al Gore. And with the aim to educate people from all over the world on the challenges, um, the results of climate change, and maybe also maybe most of all the solutions that we have at at hand already. And to me, this training was kind of a before and after, I would say. Like the the urgency dawned on me. I can still picture us sitting there and looking at the the slideshow when um all these pictures are quite. Um, it it was a uh, it was um, uh, I was quite exhausted after that presentation. I remember, um, 
But I feel, I have the feeling that you were already quite deep into action, having been a part of the, the parents' movement in Sweden and globally for, for a while. So how did you experience those days in Atlanta? What did you take home with you? Well, I mean, to start with, I had a big battle with myself on whether I should go or not. Um, yes, I remember. I was obviously really excited. Um, so on a personal level, I was excited because I haven't really done any educating of myself on a long time. I've worked on these issues like, you know, at a very high level for a long time, but it's very rarely that you have an opportunity to really sit back and, and learn more and take in new perspectives and get input because most of the times it's powering forward, you know, uh, with the mm -hmm. knowledge that you have. So I was really excited about that, the, the prospect of just getting some, meeting some new people, getting some new inspiration and, and new knowledge. Um, and then I had a big battle about flying to a climate event, of course. That was the big, uh, the big issue. Um, and I felt like, well, I still need to do it um, and I'll do it the best way I can. So, you know, trying to, I did a lot of like compensation of bio, <laughs> biochar, uh, you know, burial and all sorts of things kind of compensate for the the emissions that I caused and I also kind of published a blog about it like the difficulty of being fossil free oh. <laughs> the new dog yeah the new dog no yeah so I had a big battle about you know because it is difficult to be fossil free in a fossil world it, it, it just yes. is and we know that the you know that the everyday like flying back and forth it's just not it's not compatible uh with a sustainable world um but i thought if i if i like write about it because it is difficult um i felt i found that was really important to do and i found it i mean i i loved it uh, mm. i loved it it was three full days of just immersing yourself in like great speakers and the latest science and like-minded people from all walks of life and mm. um i remember having great conversations with Uh, like Levi, one of the the young people uh, from the the court case that is going on in America, the Juliana versus State case. I mean, so many inspirational people that you meet, uh, new perspectives, etc. So mm. I I loved it. I yes, it and and really as you say, uh, to see that people come from all different kinds of walks of life and sectors and everything from the the lawyer to the hairdresser and the grandmother and the the 11 year old so that was very uh got got me quite optimistic actually because you see all these people working on this um being so dedicated yeah yeah uh, there's, a, and there's also a strength in that right i mean the collective i think that's also why i was driven to kind of start the international work it was like mm -hmm. there's a strength in being a collective because i think there's a real um problem with feeling alone mm. in caring like am I the only one that feels this way am I the only one that's worried about this and it's a real strength and something that happens when you meet like-minded people and you do something together I mean so many great collaborations right have sparked from just that time right yeah. so many interesting yeah. things and connections and projects and ideas and campaigns Absolutely. That. The, ne the network is just amazing so yeah I agree okay so Your book, 
Congratulations, by the way. I know it's been a Thank while, you. but but still, it's a uh, you're an author. That's mm. uh, that's amazing. So you have written this book about how to talk to kids about climate, about climate, not about climate change, but about climate, right? Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's the title. Uh, so what made you do this? I mean, that all kind of it started because I didn't know how to talk to my own children about climate change. Yeah. Um, Knowing a lot about the issue, I was like, how how can I kind of relay this in a way to my children that doesn't scare them? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're six and nine years old, and they're also very different. Um, you know, my, my eldest is quite tough and resilient, and the younger one is a bit more of a worrier. And I was like, how do I do this in a way that's kind of age-appropriate? How much can I tell them? Should I tell them the truth? Um, and I found that I, I didn't have those tools. I was Googling like crazy after some kind of toolkit or book, and there was nothing. So I started working on, on a pamphlet, actually. I, I thought I was like, well, if I'm doing this work, I might as well put it into someone else is thinking about this as well and needs some guidance. So I was like, I'm going to put it into a pamphlet. And then, of course, that pamphlet grew into a book <laughs> so it's kind of looking at what, you know, like what do we know about this topic on how to talk to children about other difficult topics and what can we bring in how can we bring in climate into that and how what does you know child psychology say about the different developmental stages that children are at like what can they handle and at what age um so i started digging into all of that um and sort of collating that and making it accessible into kind of short lists of how we can do it and what what we need to avoid And of course, the spoiler of the book is that, well, we can't just talk to kids about climate change. We actually need to act. Yeah. Yeah. That's the spoiler. That's true. Yeah. Spoiler. But uh, so uh, if you give me an example, how, how to talk to a 10 year old about like their, the age where they, they um, understand a lot. They, you can't fool them. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, keeping, hiding things. They, they already read the news and, uh, Um, yeah, uh, pay attention. So, how do you talk to them? Well, I guess with with ten year olds, um, I would say that they already know quite a lot. Mm. I think that's what what what, um, what we know is that children at that age and younger, they already know a lot of stuff. They, you know, the more we talk about it in society, the higher our awareness is about the issue. The more the news talk about climate change, more gets trickled down. But I think the issue is that we don't know what a lot of kids are thinking about. We don't know what they talk about in school. Uh, we don't know if they're worried about this issue or not. Um, so the first thing is just to ask a really open question to figure that out. Like, what do you, what do you know about climate change? Have you talked about this in school? Um, what do you know about Greta and what, what she fights for? Mm. And that gives us clues to how children are feeling about the issue if they're feeling positive, if they're feeling negative, um, a little bit of what they know, like fact-wise. So I think that's a really good starting point, just to ask an open question, because that gives us clues to how we can take that conversation forward. Mm. Do you have a feeling that a lot of children are worried, anxious? Yes. Like yes, in a serious are. way? Yes, They are, and I really think that it's creeping quite, quite down in the ages as well. Uh, a lot of the kind of the surveys and the things that we know about uh, climate anxiety in children uh, that normally kind of those surveys normally start from 12 and up. And we see that 
between 12 and 18, a lot of children are worried. In Sweden, six, six out of 10 children in the age group 10 to 18 are really worried. But I guess even more heartbreaking is that only half think that we're going to solve the climate crisis. So only half oh. think that they actually have, you know, a bright future ahead of them. And I think that's more worrying. And then there's a gap. We don't really know much about younger ages, um, mm. but my sense is that quite a lot of younger children as well are worried. I mm. went to my son's class and had a, a conversation about climate change with them. And that kind of lesson finished with the children drawing pictures of what the world was going to look like when they're 30. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, like kids eight years old are like there were flying cars and there were, you know, solar panels and there were trees everywhere. And, and then there were two girls who drew kind of burnt earth and dead animals. Um, and I asked, you know, well, so tell me about your, your drawings. What have you, what are you thinking about in your drawing? And one girl just said, well, I don't really feel positive about the future. I don't think it's going to end well. And she's eight years old. So I think that we have to, because children, basically we have to talk to children because they're thinking about it anyway. Mm. And we're doing them a real disservice by not talking about it and Mm. showing them that we are part of that conversation and we are there to help them with those thoughts and worries and questions that they have and feelings. So there's a lot to do there, I think. Yes, it is. Um, I would really like to talk a little bit about bubbles. Mm. Um, I I think it's uh, both fascinating and a bit uh, scary, uh, the the bubbles we seem to live in. Uh, And I have experienced it uh, very much firsthand myself, going from working, as you know, I worked in the oil industry until 2015. And... And the first like kind of bubble I um, explored after leaving that was the entrepreneurial bubble, like mm. all the startups, all these people. And I was just, where have these people been all the time? I I have not seen them. <laughs> Why haven't I? And and that was the first kind of wow. How how is this possible? And they are just a few kilometers away from where I live. Uh, there's this uh, this uh, incubator, and I just uh, I was amazed. And the next bubble was this uh, what I like to call, or I don't like it at all actually, but the sustainability bubble. Um, and and I, I, it, it's kind of um, scary in a way that the things that we think that everybody is concerned about and read about and see on their uh, Facebook feed or LinkedIn feed, uh, they actually don't see this, the, those things that we think they see. So it's a, something also called filter bubbles, which talks directly about this internet Thing that the algorithms work in a way that it emphasizes what you already have searched for, for instance. Um, so I think this is quite a, a problem today. And how do you experience that in your in your everyday life? I guess you also surround yourself with people like other parents that are not that much into sustainability and climate. Uh, 
How do you experience that yourself and what do you think we can do about it? Yeah, I think that's, um, I mean, it's something I think a lot about. I mean, I think a mm. lot about how we pierce those bubbles. Mm. Um, and, I mean, knowing quite a bit about communications, that has a key role to play, right? Because mm. there's no point in talking climate activist language to someone who's actively involved in the union movement. We talk different languages. You know, yeah. the, the thoughts and the concepts, even though we might want the same thing in the end, um, I think we can do a lot with, like, how we – and I think that's where – there are some people that do this so well. I mean, there's my favorite scientist, Catherine Hayhoe, mm -hmm. uh, in, in the U.S., who's an amazing scientist, but she also has one leg firmly in uh, the church movement. Yeah. Right? Um so she's the perfect person to convince, you know, the deep south, very climate skeptical um, churchgoers why climate change is real. She's the perfect person. Mm. She knows the science mm. and she has one leg in, in something else. I think one of the best chances we have of getting into those bubbles is finding those people that are like the messengers, if you like, that have one leg in, in sustainability and one leg somewhere else in the union yeah. movement, in the finance industry, um, in poly wherever that bubble might be. So finding those mm. key messengers, I think, is more important than the message itself almost. Mm. Mm. But I think those are, are two key components if you're going to pierce those bubbles, finding the messages and arming them with the right messages. Mm. Um, I think that is key. But also, I mean, <clears throat> Sweden is a country where 95% of the population believe that climate change is going to affect Sweden. So I mean, awareness mm -hmm. of the issue is so high. Yeah. Uh, and I, I find it quite encouraging, like, you know, sustainability and sustainability uh, managers have been mm -hmm. siloed for so long, but now these issues are really um, trickled upwards, if you like, mm -hmm. into like the board, you know, the board and the financing industry. So I think, slowly but surely the insights are are there in a different way than it was before like environment is not like another thing no it's exactly. actually the foundation for everything that we do all of society yeah. all of business all of economics everything um and i think that that insight is is hitting home i mean i'm just looking at the swedish context now so i think there's a lot of potential there and i think also there's a huge potential in starting not with facts I mean, you know, leading with emotion, with concern. No one can argue with your climate concern. No one can no. argue with if you're worried about your children's futures and what that's going to look like and whether they'll be able to experience the same nature that you did when you were a child. You can't really argue with worry. You can't really argue with feelings. So I think there's a, a lot of potential to pierce through bubbles, meeting people um, where they are, with your own story and your own feelings i think yeah <clears throat> and that is that is also something that you do through the parents movement because you are talking to people as parents so. indeed um, i mean we've also done this work at the moment where we kind of looked at who are we reaching today and it, it is very much what you say like the people in the bubble i mean it's yeah if yeah. if i'm gonna be you know uh harsh about it it's your green mums mm leading yeah, the work yeah. it's a green mums they're concerned about you know they're part of lots of different organizations 
they you know involved in the children's lives those kind of people are also part of our core kind of 26,000 people that are drawn to us at the moment so my big thing is like how do we reach the next the next ring of influence the people who are outside the green movement there are parents that are concerned they've just maybe we call them the the recently woken so people might have you know woken up in 2018 because we had an extraordinarily hot summer mm-hmm. and a dry season that was you know beyond the ordinary and we had 700 extra deaths after that summer because of that heat wave there's mm-hmm. a lot of people that woke up then so those are the people that you want to try and reach i don't really yeah. care about the skeptics because there's so few so few of them that you know they're not really important they're just like flies you have to swat away on occasion um so i think the big wins are the next level of people who are concerned they're curious but they're not part of the environmental movement today i think that's where the potential lies in big change mm. do you have any idea why there are so many women in this uh this movement i just i just uh realized that almost uh all the kind of um volunteer networks that i'm in there's a huge uh overwhelming uh overwhelmingly more women than men it's uh yeah maybe around 70 80 percent women i would say mm. i mean there's so many aspects to this i think i mean uh if you look at our facebook group we are about 75 percent women on yeah. instagram we reach about 82 percent women yeah so it is huge and i think in it what we can see in the international climate parent movement it's a lot higher than that so i would say over 90 percent of the women that are, are of the people that are organizing or the parents are women mm. um i mean there are lots of research done on this topic why you know the the old fossil fuel economy is very tightly linked to masculine values and mm. like toxic masculine values Men have traditionally higher carbon footprints than women. They drive more. Mm-hmm. Women, you know, traditionally are the caretakers that care for their children more and they walk more. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think this is like a, a structural issue. I think that women traditionally care more about the children and, care, you know, do a lot more of the care work, I'd say, should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and also environment has been seen as a soft issue. Mm. So I think that that plays into it. But also, I guess that, you know, we're at a stage where a lot of men do care about this issue, mm. but there might not be many ways into the movement. So yeah. I think there's a huge potential to kind of develop those platforms and messages and, and campaigns that actually feels comfortable for people who come from different walks of life. Mm. And I think it's so important because um, still, even in the Nordics, there are more men than women in the boardrooms and in the like the top positions. So it's so important that we reach the men as well. Uh, and I guess, I mean, I would say that's one of the key issues why there isn't enough action globally yes. on climate change because there are a lot of men in position that, you know, are closely linked to executives in the fossil fuel industry, mm-hmm. you know, Um those kind of male structures are not very helpful. You can see that I think quite clearly in a country like New Zealand, there has a completely different leadership there, you know, a very feminine, if you like feminine leadership, soft leadership to do with like being kind, you know, and looking after people and the planet. Mm. Um, So you can compare that with a leadership style of, of someone like 
Bolsonaro in Brazil, for instance, mm. you know, mm. that kind of macho, macho male yeah. conquer nature approach. You know, nature is there mm. for us to serve. Mm. Okay, so speaking a little bit more about bubbles, because um, as I said, mentioned, and you know that I, I used to work in the oil industry for years, and in Norway, uh, this is, of course, uh, an issue with a lot of debate around it. Uh, but I think it's often uh, like when we Norwegians talk about sustainability, this is almost like the elephant in the room. And it's um, because a lot of people are so dependent on it still for work. And it's a really large part of the income for the country. So it's almost like we're a bit afraid to talk about it. Uh, but we have to. And I had this really good conversation with another guest, um, Eva Helene Rongenskog, about this, uh, where we talked about how and why we need to talk about it, but also like build on the, the knowledge that we have from this industry and the legacy and but move on, uh, you know. Uh, so I think that is really important to keep keep those both thoughts at the same time. But it's it's quite interesting for, for me to uh, to hear how you, as a as Swedish person, look at this. And and just to be concrete, if you got the chance to sit down with uh, our prime minister and talk about this, uh, and I I know you talk to a lot of politicians and try to try to move them in the right direction what what would you say to her what would i say i would say what's your what's your usp that's what i would say <laughs> yeah. what is your usp as norway in 10 years yeah you know what's your unique selling point that isn't an oil-based economy mm. um but i think i mean people get it now right that every mm ton of carbon that we emit count and the way that our economies have grown and the foundation for our economies have been fossil fuels and that obviously is wrecking the planet mm. so we know that um so then the question is like how do we exit i mean coal we started exiting globally now um so how do we exit coal when the economy is dependent on it and i think also you know, what does prosperity look like? What is it that, that you know, makes us happy <laughs> in the end? And how do we, you know, that, I mean, I think a lot of people talk now about, you know, how can we set a different compass in our societies and what should that compass be? So if mm. the goal is that we want people who live, you know, prosperous lives, on a livable planet from that how do we organize our societies how do we organize our economies to achieve that goal hmm. i think some of the most like exciting work is around donut economics yeah um kate rayworth my old oxfam colleague <laughs> who's, oh. yeah <laughs> she is oh, yeah, yeah yeah we used to work together um oh. many moons ago um, but her work, I think, is is amazing because it really gives you that compass, right? And, I mean, that's what's happening right now in Amsterdam. It's like, concretely, what does that mean then? If we want to live within the planetary boundaries and we want to make sure that people live good lives and, you know, have mm. 
security and safety and um, can provide for their families, what does that concretely look like? And what do we have to stop doing? And what do we have to build? Mm-hmm. So what kind of different economy? Like what's the compass for Norway? Yeah. Where are you? How, how will you do that with that oil? I mean, oil, I mean, fossil fuels, I think it's very close to slavery at this point uh, where everyone knows that it's, it's wrong and there are a lot of excuses for, for doing it. Mm. And it's just a matter of like, it has, it is just morally wrong. Mm. It's wrong. It doesn't matter that you do it a little bit better no, than the other people. We do it a little bit better. We, you know, we treat our slaves a little bit better. It is, yeah. um, it's the same thing with fossil fuels. There's, there's, there are, you know, we've run out of excuses for it. So mm. the quicker we can exit and have a clear exit strategy, but the exit strategy can't be based on, you know, fear and what we're missing. It's like, what are we building instead? And how can mm. we make that exciting for people to be a part of that journey? I mean, no one will argue with like, would you like, would you like a better climate? Would you like cleaner air? Would you would like to spend less time in your car? Would you like to have more time with your family? And would you like to have access to nature? I don't know many people that would say no. No, it's nothing to dislike there. Nothing to dislike. No. So how can we kind of get people on board with like, this is not a sacrifice, but we do need Mm. to rebuild our economies from the ground up. I mean, the system is not, it, it is broken. It's, it, it's a self-destructing system mm. that needs to go. But, you know, yeah, as politicians, politicians won't make those decisions. No, yeah. They need to, to know that we want it. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, this is a key part of the Paris Agreement. Uh, not many people mm. know about it. I mean nerdy people might know about it but you know there's an article in the paris agreement article 12 that is really about like how do we make the paris agreement happen and that is about involvement and participation of the public about education um without publics demanding change politicians will not make the decisions needed because they are too big Hmm. they are too big um So without that pressure, and I think that's what excites me about the parent movement is I think there has potential to do that, to really build that that power with the key group in societies that politicians are very, that listen to them, right? Because we're a key electoral group. Parents are everywhere in society. We're on the factory floors. We're in the boardrooms. We have networks of power because we are a bit older. Mm. So um, building that political power with the parents, I think, is really a key strategy to force at this stage politics to deliver hmm. i wouldn't say all of hmm. that <laughs> <laughs> I, i think it's, it was brilliant i i will set up the meeting yes. uh, <laughs> yeah you should, you should definitely talk to arna that's for sure uh okay we're approaching the end uh but of course we need to talk about the future mm-hmm. on stories for the future so what What does the future look like for you? And we can start just with the most tangible and practical. Uh, where do you see our kids' climate and and Vora Barnes climate going forward? Um, well, just practically, I mean, I've just decided I'm not, I'm not. The next seven years are crucial, obviously. So I am not going to spend mm. any more of my working life focusing on anything else. I've already yeah. made that decision. Um, yes. I want to inspire more people to quit their jobs. <laughs> We started a hashtag called quit for climate. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's you good. Quit, you know, you don't have to quit fully. Quit one day a week. You know, go down in time. Focus one day a week on something else. Like, you know, yes. Let's make that happen. More people quitting yeah. for climate. Um, but what's next um, for my Swedish group? What about Klimat? We're really excited to launch a new campaign, uh, and that takes the entry point. I mean, we talked earlier about like getting people to care, right? Mm-hmm. Um, So one of the issues where we know we can get parents' attention is talking about something that is affecting our children here and now, and that is climate anxiety that is growing and is affecting children. So that's our entry point for a new campaign that's focused on um, making sure schools do better in terms of, you know, leading the way on climate change, you know, uh, know, nailing climate education, making sure that it's truth-based and age-appropriate and also takes into account feelings and how to manage climate anxiety that needs to be a part of the curriculum. Mm. So this campaign we call the Climate Lift for Schools. That's going to go live in, in a few just a few weeks. So we'll be talking about that. I'm quite excited about everything that comes with that. I think because parents are connected to schools, so I think that's mm. a way of reaching reaching them. Is, yes. is that... Do you do you have any how how is that in the Swedish schools? Is it it's on the on the curriculum, I guess? But how you know is it good enough, or how is that? Well, so that is one of the issues is that no one knows. No. Exactly. So because it's it's one of those topics that is not a subject in itself, but it should be part of all all topics. So what happens mm. is when it's supposed to be part of all topics, they're not part of any almost. No, I'm, I'm, that's that's not true. There are a lot of schools that do great work. But it's bitty and we don't know exactly what happens in schools. All we know is that there are a lot of um, passionate souls in the schools that do great stuff, but it doesn't mean all children get a great climate education. No, so it's too reliant on the teacher. It's very much teacher reliant. So it depends on you will get a great climate education if you have the right teacher, you're in the right school that has the right uh, leadership. Hmm. So there's a lot to do there. and we can also see we've done some surveys with teachers that show also that teachers are scared to talk about this issue because they are scared mm-hmm. of making kids worried. Yes. Um, exactly. So I think there's a lot to do there. Um, and also, I mean, in other contexts, in other countries, it's a whole different ball game where like mm-hmm. science-based education in general is thrown out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just a matter of get, like getting science-based teaching into schools uh, getting to see them talk about it um but we're, we're kind of focusing around th- three things so we, we really want to see a national climate lift for all teachers that's focused mm-hmm. both on the learning so like the facts around climate change it's focused on how children are feeling about this issue so emotions and strategies for dealing with with um emotions that come up when you talk about climate change and then the third pillar then is engagement and active um citizenship so how can mm-hmm. we you know make sure that children feel empowered to take action on the issue because that is a key way you manage climate anxiety is to act. Yeah. yeah. So those three pillars are part of that work. So I'm excited about that, launching that campaign. And uh, that's next for us nationally. And then uh, with our kids climate, uh, we're obviously um, at the moment, we're doing a mother's day campaign that's just started in the UK called our other mother. So that's engaging creative communities to create for our other tired mother planet earth yeah, yeah. for mother's day so that's going to roll on uh this spring 
And then from there, we same thing there. We're just hoping to grow the parent movement. Um, we need to find more funding for these groups mm. um, to uh, make sure that they can do this work. I mean, this is a this is an issue as well for the climate parent movement. It's very much a white middle class movement because those are the people that have the financial means to do this kind of work. You know, to get involved uh, in many contexts, that's not even a possibility. No. So if you want to broaden the movement, we also need to make sure that we support people to actually do this work and get paid for it. Mm. So the climate movement needs financing urgently yes. um, to, to grow this work. Yeah, you're doing great work. So it's, it's, it's so important. And But then for our planet, in an in a ideal situation, what have we accomplished uh, in 10 years? What, what does that perfect picture look like for you? I need to write a book about that. Yeah. I, think, <laughs> I mean, this is the one of the problems, I think. We, we don't have the visions, so it's hard to know how to navigate no. yeah, that because, exactly. Exactly. you know, if we can imagine it, we can imagine what the opposite looks like. We can imagine the climate catastrophe because that's part yes. of popular culture. We can't yeah. really imagine what it looks like if we succeed. Mm. Um, but, I mean... The way it's going now, I mean, there's just been so much progress in terms of, of people getting it. Um, so what I'm hoping is that we've succeeded in, you know, completely rebuilding our societies in 10 years, right? And that's, I mean, that's everything from how we work, how we live, what we consume, how we our relationship is with nature and the environment, mm -hmm. Um, preserving biodiversity wherever we can. Um, it's going to be difficult. There's, yeah, know, yes, it will be a challenge. But, it's uh, definitely a challenge. Yeah. But hopefully if we succeed, that's what will be. Yeah. And I think that hopefully will involve like more time, more resilient societies that can you know handle, because there is climate change coming our way. The next 20 years mm -hmm. are locked in mm -hmm. already. Um, yeah. So we need to prepare for that. Um, hmm. so it's so um hopefully this was the year when people really woke up and decided to kind of do whatever they could with the tools that they have and the time that we have to make this happen it's going to take everyone hmm. and it the last year has at least it has shown us what what changes we are able to do if we really have to mm. yeah that's that's quite interesting and maybe that has woken us up in a in a way hopefully i think so i think so i mean yeah. just the fact of living through a crisis our generation haven't done that no in this part of the world right we haven't lived through a crisis like this so it's unknown territory it also makes people scared and yearn mm -hmm. for security and safety um so i think there's a lot of potential in in um, you know accelerating the climate transition on that basis like this will actually provide us with the tools for the next crisis we will be more resilient when the next crisis comes mm -hmm. the societies that we build have you know there's the stronger local communities there's you know more access to local foods there's a lot of things in the climate transition that will help us um or that connects to the to the to the covid crisis Mm, it is so i think yes. it's it's obviously a huge awful thing that's happening but it is also got potential for people understanding what we have to do to tackle mm. other crises exactly 
So we will be practice more to look at that uh, that picture. I think to to visualize it and yeah, maybe write a book about yeah, it. That's my next that's, uh, plan. Yeah, <laughs> your next plan. <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much for this. It has been great, and I appreciate you spending some of your busy time uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you. So lovely, lovely chatting to you. Thank you. So now you might be wondering, where can I find out more about these parents' movements? Where do I find out more about Frida? And where can I find this book? Even though I totally forgot to mention this at the end of the interview, like I normally do, don't worry, we will cover it now. All the links to Our Kids Climate and What a Barns Climate, webpages and social media links you can find in the show notes. The book that Frida has written, Prata med barn om klimatet, is still only in Swedish, but for most Nordic listeners, you can handle Swedish. You can also have it as an audiobook, actually, read by Frida herself. I will add all the links. So this was the end of our little Swedish tour, for now at least. I'm absolutely sure that we will come back later. For the first time, I actually don't know where we will be going in the next episode. Is it Spain? Is it South Africa? Austria? Or maybe just next door in my own backyard here in Norway? Well, we'll see. So stay tuned and I will talk to you soon.